The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning again. I want to recognize before we jump into the text, we've got some uh, kind of TBC heroes here today. Some of our missionaries are in town. Craig and Brenda Landrum are here. Craig and Brenda, where, where are y'all at? Uh, would you, right back here, would y'all stand up please just so we can say hey and thank you. We, we are grateful for y'all. The, the Landrums have planted churches in Mexico and in Spain now are, are working in Texas and we're grateful to partner with them. Um, also, just want to mention, we've got some TBC missionaries headed back this way, Ryan and Megan Murphy. They are do ministry in England, and Ryan is coming here to do a residency with me and with Shannon Sword this next year. So we are looking for a place for them, their two kids, and their dog for a year. So if you have rental properties or if you know someone who does that they could rent or that even someone would donate, we would be grateful. Well, today we're continuing our series in Mark, talking about Jesus as the good and gracious King. We're in Mark 8, 1 through 26, and we're going to talk about bread for the life of the world, which I really like, because I love bread. I don't know if you like bread, but I do. Not all kinds, but most kinds. I like wheat bread. I like white bread. I like rye bread. I like sourdough bread. I like those little pretzel buns that you can get for your burgers. I like Hawaiian sweet rolls. My favorite is jalapeno cheese bread. I would almost amen that. I really like it. I even like gluten-free bread. Not, not really. It tastes like cardboard. But I really do like bread. It is what life is made of. And last week, as, as Tim taught us, one of the sections of his text was on a conversation Jesus had with this Syrophoenician woman, and she asked him to heal her daughter, and he kind of presses on her, and they sort of have a little sarcastic conversation. He just says, well, I've come for the Jews, and, and we don't give bread to the dogs, we give it to the children. And she says, well, no, the, the dogs do get the crumbs at the children's table. And he's just amazed at her faith, that she's not put off by this, she embraces it. And so today our text begins with Jesus literally giving bread to a crowd of Gentiles. So let's read it and pray together and then just jump into the text. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes... They'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? So this sounds an awful lot like Mark chapter 6 when Jesus is feeding the Jews. They've gone to a desolate place. The disciples want to rest. Jesus has compassion on the crowd and he's going to feed them. And so he says, how many loaves do you have? And they, they said, seven so he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they also had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before the people. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus as bread for the life of the world, his body broken for us, that our sin debt might be paid, that our hearts might be satisfied, that we might be filled as those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And God, as we look in your word today, I pray, Father, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand, Lord, that Jesus is bread for the life of the world and you've called us to distribute that bread. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Jesus sees these people and his disciples again go, how are, how are we gonna feed these people? They've seen him work a miracle already with bread, but he says, I have compassion and they have nothing to eat. So the stage is set for Jesus to to show another sign that he is the Messiah. This is an interesting passage, kind of the flow of this entire text and the story that Mark is telling. It's a a twin account, sort of, with chapter six. And some liberal theologians would go, well, actually just one feeding happened. There weren't really two. But when you study the text, you can see there were two. They were in different regions. One was to Jews. The other was to Gentiles. One was to 5,000 men and their families. The other's to 4,000 people. One involves seven loaves, one involves 12 loaves, the kind of baskets that they gather the things up with are unmistakably different, but, but there are some similarities. We can see the similarities. In, in chapter 6, 31 through 44, there's a feeding of the multitude, and here there's a feeding of a multitude. Chapter 6, 45 and through 56, there's a crossing of the sea and landing, and here in just one verse we see that they cross to the other side. In chapter 7, 1 through 23, when David taught us a couple of weeks ago so well about the traditions of men versus the the commands of God. There's this conflict with the Pharisees. And today in our text, there'll be a conflict with the Pharisees. Then Jesus has this conversation with the Syrophoenician woman about bread. and, And now today there's a conversation with the disciples about bread. In chapter seven, there's a healing. Today there's a healing and Jesus touches the people in both of those instances. And then at the end of chapter seven, there's this confession of faith. And next week, Pastor Dave will be walking to us through this kind of culminating area of the book of Mark where Peter confesses Jesus is Christ. Here they are, there's this big crowd, this desolate place and Jesus has compassion and then the people get fed and they get fed with bread that's a symbol that Jesus is bread for the life of the world. There are seven loaves. There's seven loaves and seven is this number of completion and there are 4,000 people and they eat and there's a few small fish and we're told and they ate and they were satisfied. So Jesus' compassion again moves to people at a desolate place receiving bread and being satisfied and then they took up the broken pieces and there are seven baskets full. Well, with the disciples, these 12 baskets full, he's kind of saying, you trust me. It's the 5,000 Jews and their families. You trust me and there'll be enough left over. Well, now there are these big baskets, these little baskets the disciples would have picked up when Jesus fed the 5,000 Jews. The word there is kind of for their lunch pail, the thing they would carry around. It's a small little basket. These seven baskets, they're big. There's, they're full. There's enough. I, th- I think the message that we'd receive from this is Jesus is in fact the bread for the life of the world and we give ourselves away for the life of the world. There's enough. This is why when we trust the Lord, 
When TBC gives 20% of everything you give straight off the top to missions, you give to our general fund, 20% of that goes to our missions budget. It's why we're sending out Ashley Butte to, to Japan. It's why we're sending the Millers to Germany. It's why we're sending the Deckers to Thailand. It's why we send folks like the Landrums and, and Steve Kiewit, who's here, to Indonesia. It's why we send the Olsons. It's why we send Bill and Christy Bowers and so many others to the Middle East because Jesus is bread for the life of the world and we're called to distribute that bread and when we do, there's plenty left over. He's the bread for the life of the world. Are you distributing the bread? Are you sharing the bread? Jesus shares this bread through imperfect disciples. He did then and he does now. They don't understand. We'll see a bit later. Sometimes we don't understand what we're doing and still Jesus satisfies the deepest needs of people all over the planet. And so the people are sent away and they're sent away full and then the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly today, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got into the boat again and went to the other side. Why does this generation seek a sign? You want a sign? They saw him heal a paralytic. His friends lowered him down through the roof. He healed him, said, take up your bed and walk. They saw him on the Sabbath, touch a man's withered hand, and it was restored. They had heard about him healing Jairus' daughter, raising her up, and still they're asking for a sign. This generation asked for a sign. All the generations before, it might have made sense for them to ask for a sign, but they could look in the scripture and see what the Messiah would look like, and here's the Messiah in the flesh, and they go, can you give us a sign? See, he is the sign. They didn't trust the word. There's some sort of messianic sign the Pharisees are looking for. And, and Jesus isn't showing them that. They're probably confused as to why the Messiah would be going to the Gentiles because they didn't understand the word. Places like Isaiah 49.6 that said it's too small a thing that you would be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. I'll make you a light to the nations that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. They want a sign. They, they want a sign kind of like the world wants a sign today. Is Jesus really the son of God and are the people of the church the people of God? I mean, you look at these disciples and you think if you were God, is this who you would pick? You might, you might look at, at us sometimes. The church goes, those are, or the world goes, those are your people? And honestly, we, we, live, we live in a culture in a day where church bashing is, is kind of all the rage, right? Or at least most of it's rage. Sometimes, sometimes we come by that honest, hear me. Sometimes people have a problem with the church because the church is made up of tremendously flawed people and when that's the case, we should acknowledge, repent, and move forward, continuing to offer Jesus' bread for the life of the world. Sometimes people have a problem with the church because the church is tremendously flawed and sometimes people have a problem with the church because people have a problem with Scripture. And still, just like Jesus gave bread for the life of the world, distributed through imperfect disciples who didn't understand everything and didn't trust how they should. They were not quick studies. They are the very people he used to give bread for the life of the world. 
And that's what happens today. God's using his people to proclaim Jesus, to meet needs, and in so doing, to give bread for the life of the world. There are people today who would say the world would just be a better place if the church didn't exist, if those Christians didn't exist. But, but would it? I mean, what would it? You know, in the first century, second century, it wasn't, it wasn't the Pharisees who asked for a sign. It wasn't the Roman Empire who would see babies laid out at the gate. People literally would lay their, their new babies at the gate if they didn't want them. Most of the time it was little girls, sometimes little boys if they didn't like the look of them. And they would leave them at the city gate for dogs to eat. And Christians would come and take these babies in and say, no, no, you're ours. We will care for you. You will be our own. We will love you as our children. It was the church. When you look throughout history at the great amount of hospitals and orphanages and other compassion movements in history that have, have been brought about by the church, there's no denying that it's bread for the life of the world. The church today fights trafficking bringing freedom and dignity to millions, the church has inspired skyrocketing literacy rates globally. If you look at what's happened in the last 50 years because of the work of the people of God, people all over the world can read now that, that couldn't. Universities like Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Princeton. And while, yes, in America, the, the church was sometimes complicit in modern-day slavery, American slavery, it was also the church and movements in the church that abolished slavery. The church gives bread for the life of the world. In 2018, a Barna study looked at, at the church versus, versus non-Christian organizations and Christians go above and beyond all other groups in giving food, clothing, furniture, praying for, giving personal time to the poor inside the U.S. borders as well as serving those beyond American borders. They give bread for the life of the world. Even a non-religious group, a secular group, did a study of 12 churches around the Philadelphia area to see does the church have a positive impact on communities? And these 12 churches, they used 54 metrics to see what sort of impact they had on their community. And what they determined is that, that these churches in a single year brought $50 million of economic benefit to their neighborhoods. In addition to excelling in adoption, foster care, fighting trafficking, and giving community development, they proclaimed Jesus as bread for the life of the world. And the Pharisees want a sign. See, there's another passage where Jesus is talking and he's telling a story about this rich man and this poor man named Lazarus. And the, the rich man, he dies and Lazarus, he dies. And Lazarus is taken into paradise and the, the rich man, he goes to Hades. He's, he's separate from God and, and he's in this horrible fire and he, and he cries out to Father Abraham and he says, hey, would you, would you, Go tell my brothers, send Moses or send one of the prophets, send somebody to tell my, my brothers, send Lazarus to tell my brothers. And, and the response is, if, if your brothers didn't believe Moses, they won't believe if someone rises from the dead. See, the Pharisees are looking for a sign, but they don't believe what the scripture has said about the Messiah. He's right in front of them. So Jesus says, no, you're not gonna get a sign. You're not gonna get a sign. Hear me, as we think about this, we've got to distinguish between two things my friend describes. 
Sometimes the church isn't living out what God intended and people go, is that really God's people? Sometimes people get frustrated though because the church isn't living out what they intended. And often Jesus and his people are just there giving bread for the life of the world. You, you all did that through impact camps. You do it through local outreach. This week I, I went and saw TB Sears and folks from other churches at the Body of Christ Community Clinic this Thursday evening just ready to serve, ready to pour themselves out. You'll see that at Feed My Sheep. You'll see it through Discipleship Unlimited. You'll see it at Hope Pregnancy Center. You'll see it at Churches Touching Lives for Christ and Helping Hands. You'll see it through 1,300 backpacks distributed throughout our community in the coming weeks. And we proclaim Jesus as bread for the life of the world. But the, it's not just the Pharisees that want a sign. The disciples don't understand either. And so Jesus, Jesus kind of presses them. Look at verse 14. It says they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf in the boat. So the disciples are obviously discussing this and they're a little bit worried about it. We only have one loaf of bread. What are we gonna do? If we run out of bread, we'll surely starve. It's not like we know someone who could provide extra bread if we need it, right? They're, they're worried. And so Jesus, he cautions them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Or some translations say the Herodians. And the disciples began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They keep talking about this. And Jesus, aware of this, said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves and the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces do you take up? 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets do you take up? Seven. And he said, do you not understand? Guys, do you remember? You're worried about a loaf of bread. How many baskets were left over? Well, 12, you know. What about we just 4,000? How many baskets were left over? These big baskets. Oh, there were seven, right? Do you not understand? He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, it's a little bit strange that he would mention those together because they're, they're just polar opposites of the spectrum. The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod would be different, though they would be the same. They would be both seeking for power and control, both in different ways, through different means. The Pharisees, they would have been the ultra-conservative Jewish nationalists of the day. They took the law and just added on to it and added on to it and added on to it. The Herodians, they would have been the progressives of the day. And both were in an adventure and missing the point. And the disciples are worried about bread. Why are you asking about bread, he says. Why would you worry about bread? Remember, remember seeing this bread multiplied and they go, we're going to run out of bread. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, have we met? Jesus of Nazareth, you might have heard, right? It, it just makes no sense at all. But he says to them, watch out for this leaven. Well, you know what leaven does, it it grows, it expands, it's hard to control. I, I tried this week to prepare an experiment to show you how it, it grows. Over 15 minutes, the yeast was gonna perfectly form and expand on stage. It was going to be beautiful. 
Well, I tried it and I figured out how to make it grow over about three or four hours and I figured out how to make it grow really fast over about 45 seconds, right? But leaven, once it starts to grow, you gotta do this right or it's hard to control. And Jesus is warning his disciples, you, you gotta pay attention. Have you not heard? Have you not seen? Do you not understand? And when Jesus says this, when he tells them this, there's something he's pressing on when he says, watch out. See, the, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, do you not hear? Do you not see? Do you not understand? Their very thinking, the way they're thinking about the Messiah is discipline from God. Herod thinks he is the Messiah. Hey, we'll join with Rome and it's a really good time over in Rome. I don't know if you know, but these Romans, they are the life of the party. And have you ever been to one of their temples? Man, the stuff they do in their temples is way different than the stuff we do in our temple. They're a really good time. And the, the Pharisees, they just miss the Messiah right in front of their eyes and they're looking at Jesus and they're going, you're, you're not a true Israelite. You and, you and your people, you, you're not true Israelites. You don't really love Israel. If you loved Israel, you'd be like us. When there, there's never been anyone who loved Israel like Jesus did. There's never been a truer Israelite. And so when you hear Jesus saying to the disciples, watch out for this leaven, do you understand or your heart's hardened? It's, it's evoking something in their minds. And when I heard it, there's a passage I, I thought of that I wanna share with you, but then there are more. He's evoking discipline from God. In the Old Testament, when he asks them these questions, Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 looks a lot like this. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Do you not remember? Keep on hearing, but do not understand. That's what Isaiah was to tell a people that God was disciplining. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. These people had rejected God. So he's bringing discipline on them. The Pharisees and the Herodians had rejected God to embrace their idols and God's bringing discipline on them. Well, I looked this up in one of my favorite commentaries. There's a commentary by Carson and Beale and it's New Testament use of the Old Testament and it's got all these connections that these first century hearers would have seen that maybe we don't. And it pointed me to some other places. I'll show you two now and one a little bit later. Jeremiah 5, 20 and 21. Declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Jesus is saying, are you like these people that, that got punished, that got disciplined? Is this who you are? Do you not yet understand? Ezekiel 12, one and two, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious people. Do you not understand or your hearts harden? See, neither Herod nor the Pharisees like those in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel can comprehend God's work in Jesus, Carson says. But, but Mark is reminding them that, that Jesus is the one God uses to feed his people in the desert. He's the one who treads the waters into submission. He's bread for the life of the world and he's saying, are you gonna be like these people who don't understand? Are you going to embrace 
these idols? Well, there's some application for us today that we don't need to miss because nobody drifts toward Jesus. You have to be drawn toward Jesus. We drift toward our idols. And just like the Herodians and the Pharisees are at opposite ends of the spectrum, today we see this in the church in America sometimes, these idols. And two of the idols that we see that probably mimic these, one is this idol of this progressive individualism, this weird ideology that says nobody can tell me what to do, and the other is Christian nationalism. And there's, there's nothing new under the sun, and, and what these people end up doing is they end up coming at one another, usually online, right? Because um, who would sit down at a table and meet with people? Um, and they yell at each other, but they're not defending the gospel in either sense. They're just yelling about one idol over another. And personally, I'll, I'll just say, I find it heartbreaking that I have friends that used to speak the gospel all the time, and it seems like now they talk about everything but Jesus. Now, I want to be clear, when we talk about these idols, when I talk about nationalism, I'm not talking about patriotism. There's a, there's a difference. I have a friend who served our country, who risked his life, he knows the scripture well, loves the Lord, a mature believer, and I asked him, I said, what's the difference? And he said, patriotism is a deep love for my country, its ideals, and its people. Nationalism is this belief that my country is superior to all the others. One theologian says Christian nationalism is this. It's an understanding of American identity and significance held by some Christians wherein this nation or or their nation, it doesn't just happen in America, is a central actor in the world historical purposes of the Christian God. Like Christianity centers around our nation. It's not loving our nation. My friends in Rwanda who are believers love their nation. My friends in Ukraine who are believers love their nation. Romans 13 says we're to be good citizens. We're to respect authority. We're to pray for kings and all those authority. First Timothy 2 says it's good to live here. But American Christians are tempted by many forms of idolatry and some of those start with good things. Patriotism, family, work, Progress that become ultimate things. Progress is a good thing. Technology is a really amazing thing, right? Enlightened thinking can be really, really helpful, but progressive thought and philosophy seek so much autonomy that it moves away from the wisdom and protection of God's word and God's ways to brokenness. I, I saw a progressive thinker just the other day that was always kind of edgy, but used to, used to be one of these people who would talk about Jesus and point people to Jesus and and they're talking online about the fact that they're at me camp. They've come up with this idea that they think God wants them to do, and it's their me camp. And they're all excited about me camp. Let me be clear, not Chase camp, right? Not me. Who would go to that? But their personal me camp. And I thought, I wake up every day in me camp, right? I wake every day, and I want my coffee my way. I want my house at the right temperature. We kind of live in me camp, and we love me, Right? And they're telling us about God's heart for them in their me camp. And I, I noticed after I was reading the post and listening for a little bit, just this t-shirt that was uh, lots of different colors and said pride across the front. And I thought, well, that, that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. That's just kind of moved into this idolatry. See, the Pharisees would have very much looked at Jesus and said, you don't love Israel. You don't care about our people. You're not a true Jew. The Herodians would have said, who do you think you are with your truth claims? 
You can't tell us how to live our lives. You, you can't tell us. We can sleep with whoever we want. We can drink however much we want. We can do whatever we want. Christian nationalists like Pharisees lean toward this rigid system of belief rather than a genuine community that's centered around Jesus. It's my way or the highway and every molehill turns into a mountain. Progressives like Herodians are married to the licentious culture of the day They embrace personal autonomy, consuming whatever they want and rejecting everything they don't. And both of these are are rooted in a radical individualism that deforms rather than reforms biblical Christianity. So how do we fight against this to make sure we're not running toward one of these idols? I I think first is that you've got to approach community intentionally. You've got to approach biblical community intentionally. You've got to come together with people, and not all of them are going to agree with you. It's almost like being in a family, right? You didn't get to choose your family, right? Because who would have chosen those people? Don't raise your hand, okay? <laughs> right? But you love them. They're your, they're your family, and, and that's not changing, right? And you're their family, and they love you. You find a way to love one another. So without being intentional about community, you won't do that. We've got to approach community intentionally and we've got to seek shepherds and friends on the journey who will walk with us, who will help us understand them better and, and maybe they can understand us better. And then we've got to fix our eyes on the biblical historic Jesus who died for our sins and rose from the dead as our savior, our goal, and our treasure. He and he alone is bread for the life of the world. Samuel James says the idols of progressivism and nationalism promise the feeling of power over the intimidation of the world. The world is a scary place. We can get afraid. In reality, though, they magnify fear through keeping our gaze off Jesus, the sovereign Lord of the universe in human history. See, Jesus is bred for the life of the world because his body was broken. His blood was poured out. He paid our sin debt. He can satisfy, and only he can satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. So how are the disciples going to respond to Jesus? He says to them, do you not yet understand? There's one more passage in Deuteronomy 29. Moses is about to die. He's led the people out of Egypt. They're about to head into the promised land. This is one of his final addresses. These are the words of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab. Besides the covenant he had made with them at Horeb, it's this renewal of the covenant. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants into all this land. You've seen the signs. The Pharisees want a sign. The people of Israel wanted a sign. And just like Moses said, you've seen what God has done. Jesus is saying to his people, do you not yet understand? Haven't you seen? The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs in those great wonders, and then Moses says, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So throughout Israel's history, they're hearing this, do you not yet understand? And now Jesus says it to his disciples, do you not yet understand? Would they have a heart to understand? Because see, the thinking of the Herodians and the Pharisees, their very thinking, their ears that couldn't hear, their eyes that couldn't see, their hearts that couldn't understand, they were under the discipline of God. 
And if you don't understand, Jesus is the way and the only way. The gospel is the solution and the only solution. It, it might be that your thinking has been brought under discipline and God would call you to repent. Oh, that God would give us ears to hear, eyes to see and hearts to understand. But what if we don't understand? What if we're like the disciples? We've still got to believe. J.I. Packer said it this way, it's not for us to stop believing because we lack understanding or to postpone believing until we can get understanding, but to believe in order that we may understand. As Augustine said, unless you believe, you will not understand. Faith first, sight afterwards. That's God's order, not vice versa. And the proof of the sincerity of our faith is our willingness to have it so that we'll trust him even when we don't understand. So Jesus leaves the disciples with this question, do you not yet understand? And the answer is they didn't fully understand. They were going to, but they didn't yet. And so then in chapter eight, there's this just odd instance that you wonder why is this here? And I think it's here for the disciples. I think this might be the sign the Pharisees didn't get to see. So they came to Bethsaida, verse 22, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? I want to illustrate this point this morning. Could I have a volunteer? Oh, no. Nobody wants their eyes spit on, right? But then the guy says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on him again. He touched him and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly and he sent him to his home saying do not even enter the village now this is a peculiar instance why is this included is is mark telling us that jesus wasn't powerful enough to heal i think the rest of the scripture would say no 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 perhaps in part like tim mentioned last week he's telling us jesus touched the guy he's showing compassion i think that's a point but i think also this is this is the sign. The disciples are kind of like this guy. They kind of see, they kind of understand, but not quite. They see dimly. They don't have a clear picture. I, I called a couple of eye doctors this week or texted and just said, hey, this is a peculiar thing. Could this guy see before? He wasn't born blind, right? And they said, well, no, if, if he knew what trees looked like, he probably wasn't born blind. But also one of them just pointed out to me, in verse 25, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. He had had sight before, he lost it and now Jesus restores his sight and he could see clearly. And then Jesus tells him, don't even enter the village, don't go tell anybody. There's this culmination coming, but not just yet. The guy can't even tell the story, but Mark tells it for us. The disciples didn't understand, but man, they're about to understand. And now we hear it and we get to tell it and what they needed to understand more than any other thing is that Jesus is bread for the life of the world. He is bread for the life of the world and we get the privilege of telling that story. The fact that Jesus Christ is bread for the life of the world is just intensely satisfying for me and I've thought about it more this week than than I probably have most weeks, because this past Friday, two days ago, marked 30 years from the day I confessed Christ, July 16th, 1991. I was at a youth camp in East Texas. There was an Olympic wrestler uh, named David Gwynn who was preaching. 
this big, broad-chested guy. I'll never forget him talking about Jesus Christ, his only way of salvation. And I was there um, with all the bravado you would imagine of a 16-year-old, 130-pound boy. I was as arrogant as I was angry. I was lonely. I was disappointed in people I thought that I could trust. I had all kinds of things I was thirsting after, and I needed help. So I was hungry and I was thirsty and, and I found a good and just and gracious king who, whose body was bred for my life. I needed compassion, like these people on the hill or the man who needed to see, like the Pharisees and the Herodians needed, though they didn't realize it. Maybe you come here today needing compassion and you, like me, would find one who doesn't break a bruised reed, he'll love you and have compassion on you and care for you. I came doubting that night. Somewhat like the Pharisees and somewhat like the Herodians, I trusted in my own morality, but I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do. Then I heard one who answered my cry to help my unbelief, free from judgment or shame, just bread for the life of the world, for the life of me. I was looking for someone to trust and I found Jesus then and I find him now as, as the one who's only and always faithful and true. He's bred for the life of the world. I would just ask, who do you think he is and what do you think he can do? He's bred for the life of the world and he's bread that was given for you. His body was broken because of your sin and because of my sin. Though he had never sinned, he took the punishment for our sin and, and then he rose from the dead to give life for all who would believe. He, in fact, is a good and gracious king and he's a king worth following. He's carrying on a movement throughout the globe that's worth following and he can satisfy the needs of the whole world if, if they would just trust in him, if we would just trust in him, if you would just trust in him. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we thank you that you're the good and gracious king. You give good gifts and you provide good bread. And you're worthy of our praise and our adoration. You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of us bowing our lives before you. God, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand. Don't let us be deceived by the ideologies of the world, but let us trust in you and let us embrace the gospel is the only way to life and hope and salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.